This is Pastor Matthew Castro at Central Church. I'm the adult ministries pastor, and you are listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Allman. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. We're going to pray now, y'all. Father, the most important thing in our life is you. Nothing is more important than knowing you and understanding what you've revealed about yourself. Father, we'll never understand you. Uh, And I thank you that you don't require us to, but that you do call us to know you and to relate to you as you are and not to create idols of our own making. So teach us to know you tonight. Use, Use this time to increase our understanding so that we may grow in the knowledge of our God. And, and Father, you are lovable beyond imagination, though we don't, we don't love you as you deserve. So increase our love for you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I want to go back and talk about omniscience a little bit more tonight. We were looking at Psalm 139 last time. And uh, uh, I'd like you to turn back to it. I'm going to pick up with omniscience then, and we'll go rather quickly through that material because we did this last week, but I want to go back to Psalm 139 and press upon us. Uh, Not everything we know about God is comforting. (laughs) And one of the things that's discomforting about our God is that he knows everything about us. He knows our our most secret thoughts and longings, and that's dreadful in one way or another. The omniscience of God, the Bible portrays God's knowledge as unlimited, comprehensive, and perfect in every way. Uh, And uh, one of the uh, definitions that I have memorized over the years, omniscience is that perfection of God by which he knows himself and all things both actual and possible in one eternal and most simple act. He does not reason from A to B to C. He knows how to reason from A to B to C because he does that for us in scripture. But he he doesn't need to reason from premise A to conclusion B, which becomes a premise for a new conclusion. He doesn't have to do that. He simply knows. So that's what we mean by a simple act. And he has eternally known all things. Uh, He knew your name before the world was created. (laughs) Are you with me? So, but, but more importantly, and in this, he excels us in his knowledge of us but he excels us by infinity in his knowledge of himself. He knows himself. And in between, notice the two things. There are three things that he knows. He not only knows himself, and he not only knows us, but he knows that all things, both actual and possible. Um, uh, let's look at Matthew eleven twenty-seven. In Matthew 11, I'm going to come back to Psalm 139, but... Turn to Matthew eleven twenty seven. In successive versions of this PowerPoint, I will I will actually put the text in the 
in the in the PowerPoint. But yes, sir. Can you go back to the last slide for about thirty seconds. Sure, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Uh, in your Bible is eleven after seven or before. I'm, I just want that clarified. Uh, this is one of the things that God knows that I know I don't know is math. But uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, um, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And um, uh, let's stop there. Stop reading and look at me. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Um, I don't even understand my own children at times. Yes? Am I right? Are, am I, I'm, apparently I'm not alone on that. Uh, but the Father knows the Son in ways no one else knows. No one. And the Son knows the Father in ways no one else knows. No one. We, we would add in the Holy Spirit. Yes. But in terms of all other, all other living beings, angels, doesn't make, make any difference what level of being they have. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. But notice how that verse ends. Um, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you are getting, you are in a position to get to know the Father in ways no one but Jesus knows. Do do you not sense the privilege that's conferred upon us in this? We are a rarely, we Christians worldwide, age long, are rarely gifted individuals in terms of world population. Astonishing that God would do this. So he knows himself, but also he knows all things both actual and possible. Uh, We'll come back to that a little bit later. He alone knows himself fully and truly, Matthew 11, 27, but he knows past events as well as present and future events. He knows all their causes. He knows who killed John F. Kennedy. Yes? <laughs> and for what reason? And by what means? Yes? Think of all the ink that's been spilled over the assassination of President Kennedy. And we still don't know for sure. Yeah? But God knows. Um, so as, as we look through this, Psalm 33, 13 to 15, uh, Job 38, 4 and 5, these are verses that you ought to go look up and see what they say so that you will have more um, fodder for understanding who this person is that we're in relationship with. He knows his creatures, Hebrews 4, 13. Uh, there is nothing hidden from his sight. Yes? And in Psalm 139, 1 to 3, Psalm 139, let me just get us a start in there. Psalm 139, 
uh, 1 to 3. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This is a figure of speech that happens over and over and over in Hebrew. Uh, it's called merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. It's a word that, that we know best from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The things so high above us that we can't reach them and everything that we can reach on the earth. So everything in the cosmos, God knows. In the beginning, God created. We might paraphrase the whole shooting match. Does that make sense to you? So the heavens and the earth, well, was that all he did in the beginning? No. <laughs> that was enough. He created everything. Uh, when he says, when the psalmist says, and this is David here, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know all my resting time. You know my dreams. You know the things that keep me awake at night. You know what dreads I have. You know everything. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. My path and my lying down, you know all the, all the things I do during the day, even the things I do in the secret recesses of my own mind. Yes? So again, a merism. God is acquainted with us in ways that frankly are a little bit sh uh, scary. Uh, he even knows the free acts of men and what would happen if things were different. Turn to 1 Samuel 23, because this is a really important passage. This became an important passage to me. Oh, about 20, what is this, 2023? 20, about 24, 25 years ago when um, a, an approach to the, thing, to the nature of God and the nature of man was just breaking surface. It was called the openness, um, uh, openness of God theory. God can't know the free acts of men before they occur. Because if, they're, if we are free, he can't know the free acts of men. Are you with me here? And a, a friend of mine had begun, he, he was an unusual guy, he was a great thinker, but because of that, uh, sometimes he trusted his thinking more than he did some other things that he should have. Uh, uh, and he was buying into this. And I thought, Bob, you ought to know 1 Samuel 23. Well, what's going on in 1 Samuel 23 is, oh, where is it? Verses 1 to 13. Uh, I'm in 2 Samuel. Almost invariably, if you're trying to read something in 1 Samuel and you go to 2 Samuel, you can't find it. I just want to point that out to you. I learned these things over time, and I like to share them with people. To, to share you, with you my wisdom that I'm gaining in life. 1 Samuel 23. Um, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. And David uh, is concerned about this. Um, so where does it go? Uh, let me see. Verse 2. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the uh, Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. 
But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David went, and they fought, and they sure enough delivered Keilah. Um, let's see. Um, uh, verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, verse uh, 10. Then the Lord said, I'm sorry, David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrendered me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. <clears throat> so God has said, This is what's going to happen. Yes? So that's what happened, right? Um, no. No. Verse uh, 13 Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. He knows possibilities as well as actualities. And it was, by the way, this passage that got my friend Bob back on the right track. Uh, because God knows not only what, in fact, will come to pass, but he knows what would come to pass if things were different. Does that make sense to you? Uh, I've, I've mentioned this perhaps far too often, but I was born 12 minutes before midnight, which meant my lottery draft number, draft lottery number was really low. It was in the high 60s. If I had been born 13 minutes later, it would have been 303. And God knew that. Are you with me? <laughs> he knew that if my draft lottery number had been 303, I would have gone on to graduate school in an entirely different area, an entirely different way of, of thinking. And I would have done okay, I suppose, in that, and raised my family and done the things that I wanted to do. God had a different plan for me, so he had me born 12 minutes before midnight. <laughs> I said to my mother, why didn't you wait? <laughs> she said, if I knew how important it was, I would have. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to ask a woman who's gone through labor, but, but, but uh, you can understand the significance of that, no doubt. The, the point in all of this is God knows not only things that actually come to pass, and I've got to take some pills here. I, I forgot to take them during the meal, so I'm going to pop a pill here. He knows not only what could, does happen, but what could happen if things were different. What does that mean? Why then does, why was it that I was born 12 minutes before midnight? God was going to put me into the army <laughs> where I confronted a Satanist 
we were uh, we were in a language school together in uh, on the west coast, uh, east coast, and then we went to West Texas, and we were in radio school together. And one morning he said to me, Ullman, I've been having dreams about you. And I, sa I said, you have? What are you dreaming? He said, I dream you're hanging over a pit of flame because you won't preach. Well, it wasn't a, an issue that I wouldn't do it. It was the issue that I was raised, if you don't have a call, you don't go preach. Was you sent or did you just went? Was the old way we said it back in the 1950s. But... <sighs> I said, you're nuts. He said, no. He said, I, I, this is really bothering me. I can't sleep at night. I wish you'd go talk to your pastor. A Satanist said, I wish you'd go talk to your pastor. <laughs> and I went to talk to the pastor. He said, have people all your life been saying you ought to go, to go into ministry? I said, yeah. He said, who? Little old ladies? I said, yeah. He said, that didn't count. He said, every... Older woman in the church thinks a boy that she likes ought to go into the ministry. But he said, you ought to pray about this. I mean, who knows what's happening? And in the, in the uh, providence of God, here I am. Uh, well, that, 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 I, that's not the point. The point is, God had a plan that my past instruction had ruled out. Yes? But he had a plan that was working in this direction, and he was going to send um, influences to direct me in the way he wanted me to go. Does this make any sense to you? He knows all things. He knows himself. And all things, both actual and possible, in one eternal and most simple um, act. The, the point, folks, is God doesn't reason f to his conclusions. He simply knows. He knows the whole plan as a whole. And you've had these kinds of experiences in your own life where, you, where suddenly the light goes on and you comprehend a, some system, whether it's physical or... or, or, or um, what, what's the word I want? A, a verbal system, whatever it is, that 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 crystallizes suddenly, and you get a you get a glimpse of the whole all at once. Is this true? Yes. Many of you are nodding your head. It's yes. Like a, it's like a curtain gets yeah. And so, but this is this is only our little glimmer of what is the nature of all God's knowledge. He simply knows. Uh, we could look at these other passages, but I will pass them by. Let's go back to Psalm 139, and I want you to see what we quick what we tried to do too quickly last week, and that is Psalm 139 is a psalm that we we quote frequently. Um, we quote it as if it's a praise psalm, but it really is not. Um, as we tried to point out last week, um, it breaks up into, it's, uh, it's 24 verses, it breaks up into four groups of six. Each group of six breaks up into four and two. So he gives basic information in verses one to, uh, in the first four verses and then draws some kind of conclusion or some kind of 
summation of it in the in the fifth and sixth verses. So verse one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are, are acquainted with, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. These are the basic facts. Verse 5, you hem me in. What kind of situation are you in when you're hemmed in? There's no other choice. There's no, you're, you're, you're stuck. No place else to go. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such news, such knowledge in my text says wonderful. I expect yours does too. Shocking may be a better word. Uh, such knowledge is too shocking for me. It's high. My text says I cannot attain it. Uh, but given what happens in the next two groups of six, I conclude that this should be read, I cannot overcome it. David is besieged by the knowledge of God. What, what, what would be the difference in attain and overcome? Well, I can't, I can't learn all of your knowledge would be attain it. But um, this is like when he, when he says... Uh, uh, where was that? It's it's high. Where, where does he say that? Verse six. Such knowledge. It's high. Put yourself, especially if you're a veteran, put yourself in a position where you're having to attack an enemy, but you have no no power propelled weapons. You have only uh, bows, arrows, javelins. Uh, catapults, perhaps, and you're attacking uphill, what happens? I'd call Audie Murphy. <laughs> I'd call Audie Murphy. <laughs> Audie Murphy. Uh, what happens when you throw a javelin uphill? It, it, loses, it loses its force because gravity's pulling it down. Yes? If you're throwing it downhill, it gains force. So... I can besiege, I, I, you, you, have, you have set your knowledge so high, I can't overcome it. I want to escape it. Uh, the best place to put an observation post? On a hill. On a hill. God sees everything. I can't escape it. Verses 7 to uh, 12. Where, now is omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee? Flee. What kind of action is fleeing? Get to get away. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now that sounds like a beautiful image to us, yes? But the wings of the morning, if I can fly from east to west as fast as the light does in the morning. Verse 10, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me, lay hold of me. 
if I say, surely darkness will cover me. Why would you want darkness to cover you? To hide. He's trying to get away from God's knowledge, get away from God's presence. Or at least the knowledge that God has of him is frightening to him. Does this make sense to you? Didn't you uh, see that in the Garden of Eden too? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the light, it will be night. I'm sorry. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Do we always want God to know what we're doing? No. Not always. <laughs> now, verses, now, verses 13 to 18. God, God made him and knows the intricacies of his being. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed service, a a substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when I was, when as yet there was none of them. Every day, the, the days of our lives are numbered, yes? God knows every one. Uh, my favorite professor said, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go near the place. <laughs> the problem is I don't, I can't avoid the time when I will die. <laughs> but, he said, he said you didn't want to be there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you're right. So um, verse 17 and 18, how precious is a nice, is a nice word. Valuable is, is another word. How valuable to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count, count them, they're more than, I, than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now verses 18 through 21, 22, are going to be the the beginning of the last six-verse segment of the book, of the uh, chapter. Um, Oh, that you would, and here's how I know, in light of the the fleeing and the hiding from from God's presence, I know this is a lament psalm. David knows not everything in me is right. Not everything in me is something God can approve. Do, do you see that in the psalm? Yes, no, move your heads. Then what about his hatred of the wicked? And here's a, a, a petition psalms always have, I'm sorry, lament psalms always have the trouble and the petition. So here we've had the trouble. The trouble is God's, Complete knowledge of David. The problem he's facing is is wicked in his rule. Verse uh, 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. But the rest of the psalm is about David himself. And what unsettles him about God's presence, God's knowledge, and God's complete control of his person. 
So he says, verse 23, search me, O Lord. It might be that in me there are some of the same th wicked things that, I, that are in the wicked that I hate. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked, grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The only hope I have, God, is if you will lead me. I'm against the wicked, but what if I turn out to be the wicked? And what do you know about David? Uh, he's a grand man with grand failures. Yes. Um, I wish we knew when in David's life he wrote this song. Um, wish, I wish we knew a lot of things that, that God hasn't given us information about. But yeah, where, where in his life did he write it? So the omniscience of God can unsettle us. It's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful uh, refuge when you don't understand what's going on in your life. God knew these days were coming, yes? And he has prepared us specifically for these days. We can, we can take comfort in that. Yes? Yes? But is there a wicked way in me? So Psalm 139. Okay, let's, let's move on. Do you have any questions about the omniscience of God? Well, of course, <clears throat> David wrote this. He's writing about himself and what God knows about himself. Am I supposed to be able to assume the same? You know, with all my yeah. because yeah. David wrote it as personal. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I do, but I'm just wondering. Well, if God knows all things, both actual and possible, then He knows you too. Um, you're not you're not outside His knowledge. Um, he knows what Satan's next plans are. <laughs> I, I was going to say you have explained this very well, so we know all things about omniscience. <laughs> Well, yeah, we're omniscient about omniscience now. So uh, let's turn then to another attribute, sovereignty, which the, uh, the theologians say is not tr a true attribute. It's rather a function of God. Yes, sir. Back up a second. Okay. For me, as I'm reading that song, I sense David feels a security in God knowing everything, even though he knows he's not worthy of it. But you got to read those last six verses in. But, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Yeah, and see if there is any grievous way in me, because there might be, and there were. There probably is. There, yeah, that's the problem. See, if he hates the wicked, and, I, and he turns out to be wicked, then where is he? I, I have sins that I don't allow myself to recognize. No. <laughs> yes. Even a Dallas Seminary graduate. <laughs> uh, now, Southern Seminaries uh, graduates don't do that, but Dallas Seminaries do. Um, there's an old saying about Dallas Seminary graduates. You can always tell a, gra a Dallas grad, but you can't tell him much. 
That's right. I used to be conceited, but I've grown beyond that. Um, sovereignty. Now, once again, this is not a true attribute of God. It's rather a function of his being in relationship to, to all creatures. Uh, but we've got to talk about sovereignty, and this is going to create some problems for us, so we've got to work through some of this. Sovereignty has been defined this way. Sovereignty is God's all-encompassing rule over all. A sovereign is subject to no other will in the execution of plans. Sovereignty assumes that no areas under rule are exempt from the will of the sovereign. So God, this is God's all-encompassing rule over all. I guess I, that those last two words are tautologous, but we'll have to live with them for now. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Uh, so he is God of gods and Lord of lords. Um, it, it dawned on me several years ago. I don't know why I was so late to the, to the party, but it dawned on me if he's king of kings and Lord of lords, that's not just a superlative. The, the, the most supreme... <laughs> Got to reboot my mouth. The most supreme king, it's that he rules all kings. All kings. All rulers. Uh, Zelensky. Putin. Yes? Um, Xi. And Biden. He rules them all. Uh, he is the great and mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 14 and, uh, to 16. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display, and that word which refers to the appearing of Jesus, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He is, he is the blessed and only sovereign. In that sense, we don't need to worry about who wins the next presidential election. God is working out his plan. Um, in the early chapters of Isaiah, one of the ways God judges a nation is, is he gives them um, uh, children to be their rulers. Uh, I, I, first, I first really began to think in those terms when, uh, uh, oh, what was his name? Clinton. Uh, what was his name? Bill. 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 I thought you said Will. <laughs> so, William, William Jefferson Clinton. I, be, I first began to think in these terms when Clinton was president. The boy was a teenager who'd never grown up. Yes? Am I making sense to you? He gives children to rule us. Um, I kind of figured. 
I kind of figured God was at a point where he's kind of stunned. He doesn't know what to do with that. No. Say. Just want to get Chief Hunter to run it. Well. Psalm 50, verses 1 and, two, 1 and 22. The mighty one, the God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. When he summons the earth from the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, is this going to be a good thing? Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there will be none to deliver. Judgment is coming because God is sovereign. God has not moved off his throne. God has not moved over on his throne to make room for somebody else. God's in charge, folks. And it doesn't matter which party wins the next presidential election. There's still a bunch of crooks yeah. by and large. Uh, in motion. <clears throat> Yeah, so you quit worrying about the election and start worrying about serving the sovereign who has the election in his own hand. Psalm 93, 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It will never be moved. Your throne is ever is established from of, of old. You are from everlasting. God is working out his plan. Um, the world is established. The troubles in our culture are not outside his plan. They are part of his plan. Okay? Yes, no? You remember in Romans chapter 1, how does God judge a sinful people? Give them over to more sin. Well, where are we in our country? Justin said in his message Sunday, nothing happens outside of God's control. Exactly. So we don't have anything to worry about. Only thing we have to worry about is serving our sovereign Lord, who is also our Father. Yes. yes. And has promised to never leave you. And has never has promised never to leave us. I will never leave you or forsake you. If that's the case, then folks, it doesn't matter. I wanna I wanna vote wisely. Yes. Yeah. But God is doing his work. I can't understand how what we're going through in our nation is going to glorify God, but it's going to one of these days. You can, tell, you can count on that. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 17. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his, rule, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than, less than nothing and worthless. Ukraine, yes, Russia, China, and America. Psalm 136, 2 and 3. 
give thanks to the God of gods. Folks, let the nations worship their gods. God is sovereign over them. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 is a psalm about the steadfast love of God. Later, much later, perhaps, we will talk about the the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a remarkable concept, fascinating. A little more discussion of sovereignty. There is a sense, indeed, in which the sovereignty of God is absolute. He is under no external restraint whatsoever. He is the supreme dispenser of all events. All forms of existence are within the scope of his dominion. All forms of existence are within the scope of his dominion. Who does that include? Yeah, give me some specifics. Humans. How about demons? Uh, I got into ministry in the early 70s, and everybody was worried about um, binding Satan back in those days. And they, they said, we have to, before we have our meeting, we have to bind Satan from the room. And then they got worried about, oh, wait, wait a minute, we got to bind him from the air conditioning system and from the electrical outlets because he can get in through that. I thought, this is getting silly. If I can bind him from um, Memphis, Tennessee, how about, how about binding him from Shelby County? And if I can bind him from Shelby County, can I bind him from Tennessee? And if I can bind him from Tennessee, can I bound him from the whole Southeast? And if I can bind him from the whole Southeast, can I bind him to the whole of America east of the Mississippi River. And if I can do that, can I bind him from all of America? And if I can do that, why don't I just bind him from the whole earth? And if I can't do that, then I can't do the the rest of it either. I don't need to worry about binding Satan. All right? You just have a little trouble with the Northeast. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, the Northwest, too. So there... Folks, I have nothing to, to fear objectively from satanic influences. There'll be a lot of pain, a lot of grief. Yes? But no damage. No, 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 no real damage at all for us. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, you remember this? Um, he appeared... My favorite professor said, when he appeared to the disciples when the doors were locked, he said, I've always been anxious to get my resurrection body because I've always thought using doors was a drag. <laughs> but Jesus showed up in the group with the, with the, uh, the disciples. Remember this? And Thomas said, I won't believe that he's risen from the dead unless, what did he say? I see the prince of the nails and the, uh, the uh, gash in his side. Yeah, put my hand in. So, so Jesus, Jesus showed up in a form that could eat. Yes? Spirits, generally speaking, don't eat. Yes? He showed up in a form that could eat and that could be felt. Come put your finger in, into the point, into the 
nail prints. Jesus' body, do you think it looked ugly? No. I don't either. I, it's my opinion from that, and this is, this is Allman's opinion, but opinions are like noses, and, and, and everyone has one, and they all smell. So t- take it for whatever it's worth to you. It's my opinion that every scar, every scar you have borne in your life, emotionally, spiritually, physically, for the sake of Jesus, will be in your, in your resurrected body. But it won't be ugly. It will be beautiful. Does this make any sense to you? That's the only thing that's in heaven that's man-made. The, nail holes in his hand. Yeah, but it was it was God inspired, God led. the The point I'm making, folks, is that uh, really there is nothing that can harm us. There are things that can hurt us, but nothing that can harm us. All of this reminds me of Roosevelt, where he said, "Nothing to fear, but fear." Yeah, but he didn't have a good reason for saying that. He was just trying to cheer people up. He had no power to affect it. That's right. He had no power to affect it. But yeah, we can use that now in ways that he never would have dreamed. Um, in, in basic training, any of you who've been basic th- through basic training, uh, there was a lot of pain. Yes? Front leaning rest position. <laughs> that was, I think that was as much pain as I felt in my life. Uh, my arms were quivering, and I never have been a physically strong person anyway, but my arms were quivering, my back was, oh, it was killing me. Uh, Drill Sergeant Brownie, there were two Drill Sergeant Browns in my company, so one was Brown and one was Brownie, but uh, Drill Sergeant Brownie was the, the PT instructor, and he, he, he said, keep, keep, your, keep those backs straight. And I, went, yeah. and I thought, yeah. but what was that actually doing to me? Discipline teaches you to overcome. It te- there, there are at least two things that it's doing to me. One is it's teaching me how much pain I can really bear. Yes, under duress. And if you're going into battle, you probably need to know that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, you can take a whole lot more than you think. You just don't realize it. Second was, he was strengthening my body in ways it had never been strengthened, and that's why I was hurting as much as I was. Third, you better obey orders. Third, you better obey orders. That's that's the most important lesson in in basic training. But, folks, that was strengthening me. What does God say about our, our sufferings in the New Testament? They are preparing us to be like Jesus. If I knew for sure what Jesus is like, I probably would embrace the sufferings of this life a whole lot more willingly. Does this make sense to you? Now, if God is sovereign, here's the big problem. How does this fit with human freedom? Um, Will... We'll talk about the goodness of God in a few weeks, and then we'll have to talk about the problem of suffering. But right now, I want to talk about how does this fit with 
human freedom. And here we've, we've dealt with this in some measure in other settings, but definitions become exceedingly important at this point. Um, all theology is definition. Everything that, everything that you say theologically depends on definitions. If you define it the wrong way, you're going, you're going to go off pretty far at some point. You know this, and any pilot knows this. If you're, uh, Dick, if, if you're off two degrees from, from the destination where you're supposed to be over a thousand miles, I have no idea how far that would be, but it, it'd be a long way off. That's only two degrees out of 360. I mean, how bad can it be? Well, it depends on how far the flight is. Um, so definitions become exceedingly important, and if I use improper definitions, I'm going to create problems for myself. But if I understand sound definitions of a concept, then I'll, I'll be able to work with it. Um, the common definition of freedom is power of alternate choice. And uh, by that, I mean the ability to select any option presented to one's will. So I, I always have, I, if I'm free, I can always do anything that is presented to my will. But that's not really the case in most circumstances. Um, because my preferences, yes, will always d lean me in one direction or another, yes? My likes and my dislikes will always influence my decision. So, in fact, I really don't have um, the will. pardon. Don't have free will. I don't have it in this sense. Uh, I don't always have the opportunity to the option to choose any uh, option that is presented to me. Um, So I'm going to suggest that, in fact, we don't have that kind of freedom. Um, in our minds, we do. In our minds, we do, but in fact, we don't. I can, I can choose to jump off a building, yes? And once I've jumped off the building, I might want to be back up on top, but I no longer have a choice. The prior decision has cut out all the options. Yes? And as, I, as they say, it's not the falling that hurts, it's the stopping at the bottom. You heard about, I, I think I told you about the guy who fell out of the 20th story window. And at the 10th, 10th floor, somebody said, how's it going? He said, so far, so good. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I, in, in many very important circumstances, I don't have the power of alternate choice. And I'm going to argue that normally we are not free to do anything that's not in accord with our nature and character. I say normally because there are times when we obviously do do things that are out of character and everybody, everybody who knows us is astonished. Yes? Yeah. Uh, so that, that needs to be uh, qualified. But I know if I jump off a building, I know what the, the effect of that's going to be. And like I said to you, I think last week, I can stand anything but temptation and pain, so I'm pretty, pretty much not going to jump off a building. Yes? 
So uh, if that's the case, then my nature and my character suggest that I would, if even offered the opportunity to jump off a building, I wouldn't do it. And I, ab I abhor heights. Uh, skiing, one comedian said, is going way too fast without an airplane around you. <laughs> and I'm heartily, heartily in accord with that comedian's point of view. Let's go back to the God will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able to. Yeah. Well, let's stay with this for the pr for the present. Um, Choices. Say again. Doesn't God affect your choices? He, you might have a desire. To, to, yeah, there's there's more here that we we could say, but I got to go a little different direction for the moment. And the first question I want to ask is: Is God free? Yes. No. God can't do what He wants to do. Well, within his own. Well, within in, in accord with his character and his nature, yes, he can. Is he free to do what he wants to do? Yeah, because he is righteous, he is free to do all that he wants to do. Mind you, the capacity for sin is not freedom; it's slavery. See, we think that um, if I want to do something, and I, uh, then then I'm, I'm going to do it because I'm free then you're just thinking very shabbily because crime is always a limitation. It's never uh, beneficial to you or to the, or to the community, never. And, and the ability to commit a crime is not freedom, it's slavery. Yeah. So is God capable of acting contrary to his character? Yeah. No. Then is he free? <laughs> yes. Then is he, uh, uh, if so, if he is capable of acting contrary to his character, then he is not immutable. If he's not able to violate his character, then he's not free. And yet God is the most free of all beings, for he can do all that he wishes, a thing that we cannot do. I can't do all that I wish. His wishes are all <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I'm but question God. I'm not either on this. So, so either, either God is free and we are not, or we are free and he is not. The ability to sin, see, free will is power of alternate choice. I, I always have... Uh, the option to choose any uh, opportunity of, uh, avail, uh, uh, available to me. If that's the case, then I am freer than God is, if that's what freedom is. But if God can do all he wishes, and I can't do all I wish, and that's a good thing, yes, then either God is free and we are not, or we are free and he is not. Or there might be another op alternative. And I propose this as the alternative. We have an inadequate definition of freedom. Um, think about it. The lost are unable to do other than sin. Everything the lost do is sin. 
Do you buy that? Because they're not saved, yes. Go ahead, Ken. There's this thought in my head. So you're saying if you're lost, you can't do anything that's not simple. That's right. Simple nature. Not because sinful nature. I don't think that's a biblical category. What is the definition of sin? Anything that doesn't please God. That, well, no, it's it's worse than that. Yeah, I know. It's un, it's un, No, it's not a high dollar word. Jesus said, John sixteen eight and nine, folks. This is so important. You got to get this down. Um. Uh, and when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment of sin because they do not believe in Me. Does that, does that mean they don't do good things? They only do bad things? No. But the reason they do good things is not because of faith in God. It's because they have no love for God whatsoever. And it is faith, faithlessness, that is the essence of sin. Bill? I have a real close friend. He graduated from high school together. And uh, he was I visited him not long ago. He's some oxygen and has a certain time to live. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I asked him, I said, how do you stand with the Lord? And he said, well, I don't want to answer that question. Kind of defensive, defensive. And then he said, I just think there's going to be a lot of good people that are going to be in heaven besides those yeah. that are just up there. And almost like a club. Yeah. He didn't say that. Yeah. He said, I think there's going to be a lot of good people who want to have it. Suppose the president of a Christian university was, um, they, they were planning, the board had, had made some plans to, to, to do some building uh, that would enhance their ministry to the churches that they serve. Uh, and he went to a um, believer who was a multimillionaire and he said, here is our plan, here's what it will do, here's what we need and we'd like to ask you for a million dollars. And the believer says, I think that's a great plan. Here's the money. I'll give it to you. Then he went to a non-believer, and he said, here's the plan. Here's what we want to do. We'd like to ask you for a million dollars. And the, the non-believer would, would think, yeah, I'd give a million dollars for that. What's wrong? Will both million dollars spend the same way? Can you buy the same thing with with a million dollars from the non-believer that you bought with a million dollars from the believer? Yeah. So, is the act of the non-believer a righteous act or not? And the answer is, why would a businessman give a million dollars to a university? He's a kind guy. He's a kind guy. What are some other things? He wants his name on the building. Name on the building. Got plenty of money. Got plenty of money. It will help with his tax tax debt at the end of the year. Are you with me here? Yeah. Now, that those same things might accrue to the Christian businessman, but in my illustration, since I'm making the illustration, I can make it work whatever way I want. <laughs> the, the, the believer says, this would serve the Lord's plan and the Lord's work in this community. I want to help this. The other guy's thinking, tax break. Uh, you, you follow? The one is a righteous act, the other is a sin because it's done in unbelief. They're both good socially, yes? 
culturally. They're both good. They're both the same kind of act. There is no moral, fundamental moral question involved in giving a million dollars on either side, but because he does it in unbelief, it's sin. So even the good things that non-believers do are sin because they do it in unbelief. Are you with me here? This is why we are slaves to sin. Folks, why is it I've been reading through, I'm teaching Old Testament survey on Monday nights in, the, in CBI, and I've been reading through this material again, Genesis, uh, we're going to be doing Deuteronomy um, this next Monday night. And Israel, I, I, as I read through Exodus, Israel comes uh, before the ten plagues are even complete. So leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It was better for us before you came back. Once they got across, once they got to the Red Sea, why did you bring us out here to die? Once they got across the Red Sea and they've run out of water, why did you bring us out here to die? And once they got where there was no food, why did you bring us out here to die? When they came to the place where there was no water, the first place had water, but it was bitter. The second place had no water. Why did you bring us out here to die? And then, and then when they get upset at God's choice of Aaron and his family, the Korah and Dathan and Abiram, I know you've just been living with those guys recently, but Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Korah was a, was a Levite, and he was very upset with Aaron. You, you sons of Aaron are making too much of yourselves. All the people are holy. Well, that was true. God had said that. But God had chosen Aaron and Moses. Yes? And fire came out and destroyed Korah, Dathan, and Byram, and the, the earth opened up and swallowed everything they had. You remember this? Yeah? And then they started out, and they got to, to the wilderness of Paran, and, there's no, and, and they're getting weary of manna. We want meat to eat. Well, God said, you want meat? Okay, I'll bring you meat. I'll give you meat so much that by the time you've eaten it up, it'll be coming out of your nostrils. You can imagine what the imagery there is, is about. And they get to the plains of Moab. After defeating Sihon and Og, I know, again, Sihon and Og, you haven't paid much attention to in your life, but after defeating them by the power of God, we can't go in there and take that. Those people are big. They didn't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or heart to understand. They had no faith. They couldn't trust the revealed character of God. Are you with me? And that's most of our world today. And that's an awful lot of the people who come to churches on every Sunday. They can't trust. I can't. I, I find myself arguing with God about things. Um, so everything the lost do is sin. 
Even the good things they do is sin. Um, so John 16, 8 and 9, the essence of sin is unbelief. They are not able not to sin for all that they do is from unbelief. So every good thing they do turns out to be sin. It's the only thing they're free to do. So what, what can we say about freedom? How, what, what's a good definition of freedom? I propose this. Freedom is the ability to act spontaneously, without coercion, in accord with our own nature. So, sure enough, I can't jump off a building and will to be up back up on top, but I can choose to jump off or not, yes? Uh, but my character, since I can stand anything but temptation and pain, my character is such that I'm not likely to jump off a building <laughs> because I know the pain is at the bottom. And, and, and my, I, I would always think with my luck, I wouldn't die. <laughs> uh, but, but this definition not only fits us, it also fits God. God acts spontaneously without coercion in accord with his own nature. And he may do all that he wishes to do. And you will be able, I will be able to do that when I am resurrected. Then I will be able to do all that I wish to do. Can um, jump off a building? Well, if necessary, in the service of God, yes. Yeah. So... Satan was, was very um, skillful in his temptation of Jesus. Cast yourself down, for the scriptures say that he has given his angels charge over you to, to, to bear you up. If Jesus had needed to do that for his ministry, then he could have done it, but not presumptuously. So, consequently, God's sovereignty does not negate our freedom. I still do all that I want to do in accord with my character, spontaneously, and without coercion. Yes? When I'm coerced, I'm not acting, acting freely. But when I'm acting without coercion, spontaneously, in accord with my nature, I'm free. But that includes freedom to sin, which is no freedom at all. It's ultimately slavery. But more importantly, does God have power of alternate choice? And the answer is... He cannot break his promises. He's not able to sin. And he can't act contrary to his nature. That's why you need to know the character of God. Is that the same able to, able to act contrary to his nature or character? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 if, it, it's the one and the same for God. Uh, so in, the, in thinking about God, he, all he does is, is perfectly consonant with everything in his being. If that's the case, then folks, as one of the theologies I was looking at today said, his power is loving and his love is powerful. So God's not going to send you into, and, and here's somebody mentioned that, it might have been Bill a few minutes ago. Uh, he won't uh, suffer us to be tempted above that we are able. But that's with the help of the Holy Spirit, too. But 
He has given us all things that are necessary for life and for, for godliness. Uh, I think that's right. I think it's in Second First Peter chapter 1. He has given us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. If that's the case, then, folks, all I really need to do is come to know my God and know what kinds of things he wants his people to do and know what his character is so that in the midst of these things, I can trust him. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Well, it's 737 and nobody warned me. So I've broken the rule already. Sir? Say that again. God's love. God's love is powerful and his power is loving. So God is never going to overpower you in ways to damage you. He's, he's going to use his power in your life in loving ways that are, that are thoroughly consistent with his grace and his mercy. Does this make sense to you? All right, let's close with prayer. Father, we're beginning to realize how little we really know about you. Um, you've revealed an awful lot in your word. Uh, we haven't paid attention. We've read the scriptures to fit our presupposition system, and because of that, we've missed a lot of what is there about you. Some of us fear you because we have thought of fear as dread and that you are a dreadful person and that you're somehow going to do things that, that will hurt us. Father, I've felt that way on many occasions. And there are times in our lives when hard, things are so hard, we, we, out of the pain of our souls, cry out, where is God? And I'm so thankful that the psalmist did the same thing. Father, you inspired your people centuries ago to pray that exact prayer. But Father, when we cry out that way, you know how our hearts are aching and we long for respite, but we see none in sight and we cannot see your purposes. Part of it is that you're hiding them so that you can surprise us and that we will be so stunned at how good you turned out to be that it will be all the more glorious and all the more joyful for us. So as deep as the darkness, so great is the glory and cause us to, to trust in that reality so that we may trust you even in the darkest nights. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Allman. If you're new to Central Church, you can check us out at centralchurch.com. You can get more information about our ministries and our classes. We hope to see you back.